faithwire.com. Well, hello and welcome to 4 and 3, a podcast breaking down four of the most important stories of the day and three things you need to know about them all from a Christian perspective. Today is Friday, July 9th, 2021. I'm Dan Andros and coming up on the podcast today, details on Hades assassination emerges and it's like something out of a movie. Uh, And a Canadian journalist has warned of dark days ahead for religious liberty amid church fires. And a sex ed teacher has resigned after a shock lesson to six-year-olds. Just disturbing stuff here. And a Texas judge has denied a woman's divorce proceedings and ordered her to appear in a Sharia law tribunal. We'll have these stories and more with Trey Goins Phillips uh, from faithwire.com. Trey, how are you on this Friday, sir? I'm good. Happy Friday to you. Uh, you as well. So these these stories, like you said uh, in the the lead up before we started recording here, are just crazy. Like just yes. weird, weird stories. It's hard to think. I mean the the stuff that's been going on in Canada since the pandemic began has just been Canada. increasingly like mind boggling with the way they've shut down churches and stuff. And now uh, ten plus churches have been set on fire. I know we talked about this the other day, and I'll talk about it a little bit more on the podcast today. And it's just kind of like. They're right there, you know. They're they're our, our neighboring country, and it, you know we kind of equate the two. Their culture is similar to our culture in a lot of ways, but some of this stuff is just crazy to no, me that okay, it's happening yeah. so close to home. Yeah, Canada has gone off the rails and uh, are not going in the yeah. right direction. And um, our first story that we're going to dive into here, uh, Trey, is Haiti, and they are clearly uh, in a lot of a lot of trouble right now, and. Man, it's a country that, I, as I talked about earlier, uh, Trey, in this week, it's a, it's a country near and dear to my heart. I, you know, I only had one visit there, but it really, you know, left an indelible mark on sort of my heart and soul, just meeting some people there and seeing how they live. And uh, when you see the violence that's happened there over the past few weeks, that was troubling enough. But then you had the assassination of their president. It really um, put things over the top. And uh, the details that are coming out now are like something as I said, out of a movie. And uh, an armed group of alleged professional killers stormed the president's home uh, and shot him 16 times, at least 16 times. And now there are 17 suspects that have been arrested in the shooting with at least uh, eight more being sought after. And two of them have uh, U.S. citizenship, or Haitian Americans. So we'll have the details on that here in just a second. But um, the, the details that are coming in, the reports that are coming in are um, it, the, it's fast and furious. It's hard to know what to trust because you have a whole lot of corruption, a whole lot of um, chaos going on there right now. And uh, some of that chaos where three suspects were killed in a shootout with police. Uh, as a, This was after a group of 11 armed suspects just showed up at Taiwan's embassy, uh, which Taiwan described as mercenaries. Those were arrested without resistance. Uh, and then you add to the plot that while the 15 of the detainees were from Colombia, and two of those, as I mentioned, were Haitian Americans. Uh, one of them, James uh, Solages, uh, has le- he has left his arrest has left family members confused uh, and in shock. He's a 35-year-old Haitian American from South Florida, and he's a U.S. citizen from Haiti originally. His family said he's a man of integrity who did charity work in Haiti. Uh, he was the president of a Florida nonprofit organization named after Jacmel, which is a town on the southern coast of Haiti. He'd hope to be mayor there someday, so he was an aspiring politician. 
His relative said, we can't believe it. I don't think he's capable of doing these things. I think somebody used him. Um, Joseph Vincent is the other American in custody. And I don't have many details on him yet. But but not everyone is buying the government's version of the story. According to NPR, officials had given out a little information on the killing other than to say that the attack was carried out by a highly trained and heavily armed group. Family members also say, by the way, when you when you take that into account, highly trained, heavily armed, uh, family members of that American Haitian who was arrested said he had no mail. He wasn't in the military and didn't have any training. Uh, so they're saying it was out of character for him. So that's odd. Um, but not everyone was buying that government description. When a Haitian journalist uh, wrote, who writes for a local newspaper, um, tweeted a report on comments by the police chief, it was a flood of responses on social media expressing skepticism. And a lot of people were wondering how a, the if these attackers were so sophisticated and went in there uh, and penetrated uh, President Moise's home, uh, a security detail, a panic room, and then they escaped unharmed. They went through all that. He's got a security detail. There's a panic room. They, they go in. No shots are fired except for uh, towards the president. Uh, and then they're all just caught without a successful getaway. It just seems it seems unlikely. You know, you have this successful entrance and attack and then you're just all caught, you know, with the next day with very little resistance, uh, obviously, except for the, the couple ones that had did have a shootout. But then you have dozens yeah. others arrested without any incident. Um, but the details of the attack were, were crazy. Um, he was shot a dozen times in his office. His bedroom was ransacked. Um, wow. his, his daughter hid in her brother's room during the attack, and a maid and another worker were tied up. His eye was shot out. There were some reports saying that he was tortured. Um, Haiti's ambassador to Washington said that the killers were professional, disguised as U.S. drug enforcement. So they were kind of yelling DEA when they came in. And, um, and so just very, very... Sketchy details and a lot of distrust as the government narrative of events. Uh, not everything adds up in the story, so we'll see as details come out. Um, but obviously not a right or left issue uh, here, Trey. But you know, as we discussed the other day, you know, just to be praying for for Haiti. I mean, there's so many American groups there and charities that are on the ground, um, and so you know, not just for Americans, but on a human level, um, you know, it's it's not only a beautiful place, but, you know, as I just from being there for a week or so, you meet some of the people there and there's just so many awesome people there. A lot of Christians, you know, trying to live in the midst of that. And um, it's just sad to see it all devolving. And, you know, and I think, yeah. you know, when we look at it and we say, oh, look at that chaos and look at these barbarians that are out there, you know, arming themselves and creating militias and and gangs to protect themselves, et cetera, et cetera. But I think we underestimate the level of fear and sin that can happen when the security blanket of prosperity, those blinders of prosperity that makes us think we're so civilized. When you lose all that, I think people can go a whole different direction. Yeah. And I think it kind of shows that a lot of that stuff, a lot of those structures that we have in place here in the West and the United mm -hmm. States are, they're pretty fragile, you know, like yeah. uh, any of these things that we have set up can fall apart 
in an instant. Uh, it's just based on the, a mutual understanding and a mutual desire to maintain that order. Uh, but whenever something happens, whatever the tipping point is, whether it's corruption or it's uh, you know frustration, political anger, you know, and it could be any number of things. Whatever that tipping point is, all it takes is is one you know one last straw, uh, and and everything can come toppling down. So. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we should necessarily look down on, on the country and say like, oh, we would never be like that. Yeah. Um, but certainly be in prayer for them because, you know, that it's awful to see that wherever it's happening, uh, whether it's in Haiti or anywhere else, um, that kind of destruction is, is difficult because not only do you see the heartbreak and the horror of what's happening in the moment, but you also have to think, when it stops, what's going to be there? You know, what, what, what's going to be left? Yeah. Um, where are they going to have to start the rebuilding process from? And particularly with Haiti, I mean, they've been through so much. Uh, their country has just been kind of hit over and over and over mm-hmm. again uh, yeah. with, with natural disasters yeah. as well as political corruption and all of that. So uh, it just seems like they're, they're due for a, a break. I hope it's yeah. just, they've, they've dealt with a, a whole lot. Yep. Definitely keep Haiti in your prayers for sure. So, all right, story number two. Um, so as the fires continue to burn in Canada, Ezra Levant, he's a, a right-leaning journalist in the country, he's likening the rash of church arsons to the early signs of the systemic persecution of Jewish people in the lead-up to Nazi Germany. Uh, Levant told Tucker Carlson this week that he's reluctant to use the word Kristallnacht, uh, referring to the night in pre-war Germany when Jewish synagogues were destroyed, but warned Canada is enduring what he described as the dark days as dark days for religious freedom. So we talked about this on the podcast earlier this week, but here's a little recap. So Levant's comments come as several churches, mostly belonging to Catholic or Anglican denominations, have been burned to the ground amid the discovery of unmarked graves at erstwhile schools for indigenous children. So roughly 150,000 indigenous Canadians were forced to attend the Indian residential school system, which was largely operated by the Catholic Church, over a period of about 120 years. And then in 2015, a government commission concluded that the system was guilty of so-called cultural genocide against those indigenous groups. Since May, though, more than 1,100 unmarked graves of children have been discovered on the former grounds of those shuttered schools in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and British Columbia. And Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, he offered a soft condemnation of the attacks in late June. He said it's not the way to go, uh, referring to the arsons. And after facing a lot of criticism, including from Levant, Trudeau finally condemned the arsons uh, in a little bit stronger wording late last week, calling them unacceptable and wrong. He did, though, add that he understands their anger. So what's the left saying? Uh, well, several on the left in Canada have been more accepting, uh, you know, of excusing the arsons. Obviously, nobody is, is out there promoting it for the most part. There are those some uh, who actually are. So the leader of the British Columbia Civil Liberties Association, uh, Harsha Walia, uh, Dan, I think you mentioned her earlier this week. Uh, she tweeted, burn it all down, referring mm-hmm. to the Catholic churches uh, in Canadian provinces. Uh, and although he said the arsons are wrong, Gerald Butts, he's the former Canadian principal secretary tr- to Trudeau, uh, like I said, he did condemn the arson, uh, but he said that the fires are understandable. Uh, so it's been kind of a soft a soft yeah. condemnation at best uh, from the left, and then even a few who have outright endorsed it. 
Uh, so what's the right saying? Well, here in the U.S., people like Tucker Carlson have been condemning the attacks as wrong. Uh, Canadian journalist Danielle uh, Hamamjian, I'm sure I'm butchering her last name, uh, she pointed out that the big difference, uh, there's a big difference in Trudeau's messaging in 2015 when one mosque was set on fire uh, and his messaging now when 10 plus churches have been set ablaze. Uh, his condemnation for the latter has taken weeks and it hasn't been all that strong. Uh, but in 2015, here's what he said when one mosque was set on fire. To families who attend the mosque for prayer every week, the government of Canada and our law enforcement agencies will protect your rights and make every effort to apprehend the perpetrator. Uh, so quite a difference in response there. You know, he said burning churches is not the way to go. And I don't think that the government has made many, if any, arrests so far in these arsons. Uh, but he had quite a strong message in 2015 when there was one mosque set on fire so that she just pointed out the difference there in, her me in his messaging. Uh, so why does it matter? Well, as believers, we need to, of course, be praying for a stop to this kind of violence, for justice, and for the courage of the government, including Justin Trudeau, uh, to step up and defend the rights and religious liberties of Canadian citizens. Uh, we also just need to be in prayer for, for Canada generally. Like I said at the beginning of the, of the podcast, the country has just been through so much in, in regards to restricting religious liberty, mm. since the pandemic began, uh, they've been arresting and imprisoning pastors for holding church services amid COVID restrictions. Uh, and now we're seeing you know, 10 plus churches set on fire uh, for, for nonsensical reasons. And it seems like the government has been pretty weak in its response. So yeah. uh, as believers, I think we should need to be praying for our brothers and sisters uh, at, at church in Canada. Yeah. And, and for people to have the courage to just stand up when something is wrong. Right. And like, yeah, just don't worry about being PC. And it just seems like when you watch politicians today, they're calculating, well, who's the loudest group and who's going to complain the most? How hard is it to say, don't burn a church down? What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Like, how does it, how does burning a church help anyone? Well, it's not the way to go. I mean, that's just that's a weak response uh, to somebody burning down churches. And if anyone noticed there, if you're watching on the live stream and you could see the, the video here, that's from the uh, Canadian Broadcast Company there. Um, it's it's a church made up of descendants of these in these First Nation, these native Canadians. <laughs> and so yeah. you're what are you you're, you're harming the very people that you're allegedly mad about. So that doesn't add up at all. If, if these people are mad about these yeah. offenses against indigenous people from you know uh, these these schools and finding these unmarked graves and finding kids there and we don't know exactly what the deal is there yet if you're if you're mad about that why are you burning down their descendants churches what what how does that help so a lot of just things not adding up here but regardless yeah, and you know, the, go ahead on the the yeah i was just gonna say on our story on faithwire we've got a, a, a video there are indigenous leaders uh, and members of first nations groups who are coming out and condemning asking them, please stop uh, because like you said it's hurting these indigenous populations who are members of these churches and also they're targeting other churches there's one protestant church for example that you talked about dan the other day that's made up of vietnamese refugees yeah. uh, and their church was was burned to the ground so it's just their their anger with the way they're lashing out, they're hurting the very people that they're claiming yeah. to be representing and helping. Right. So, um, yeah, it's not making any sense. So, 
um, sad all around, and we'll just continue to pray for those people. I mean, there's beautiful churches there, too, the old churches that are getting yeah. burned down. So we'll be praying there um, that uh, whoever's doing this is brought to justice uh, and that it ends yeah. swiftly. So, all right, let's uh, head into story number three. And a former sex education teacher in Manhattan has resigned her position after teaching six-year-old students that it, quote, feels good to touch their genitals. And uh, if you're watching on the live stream here, you're seeing one of the videos that she allegedly played. And uh, in it, they, this person uh, starts, the kids make a joke about um, one of their private areas. And then the teacher swoops in there and starts making, explaining all these things about how, you know, uh, way too many details that a that you should be a teacher should be giving six year old children when yeah. it's when it's not their parents. So the the teacher is Justine uh, Ange Fonte, and she first faced some backlash back in June uh, when she shared videos with her young students teaching them how to touch their bodies in intimate ways. Um, and so she reportedly played animated videos such as the one we're showing now. Um, that discussed a whole host of inappropriate details about male and female body parts. Um, she had a salary of about fifty-five grand, and now she's unemployed. And um, she had a wide number of duties, but facilitated instruction on gender identity and sexual consent. Uh, she also taught at Columbia Grammar and Preparatory School and uh, faced some criticism back in May over a porn literacy lesson she taught to high schoolers. That class exposed students to a, quote, intersectional focus on mainstream porn. And presentations often included very explicit language. Um, School administrators did issue an apology to parents. Those parents did not know about this material that was being uh, taught uh, by Fonte. So she said she quit her job because her bosses, quote, failed to back me up. Uh, once there was criticism and even claiming that the backlash against her, quote, cost me my safety. She went on to say she stands by her lessons and hopes to, quote, equip students with, quote, a way that they can exercise body agency and consent by knowing exactly what those parts are, what they're called, and how to take care of them. And now she's saying she'll move on to writing children's books. So what's the left saying? Well, the left has been pushing sort of radical uh, agendas like this when it comes to teaching uh, sex and gender issues for some time. I mean, we've seen things like Drag Queen Story Hour, which who would have thought to put those two things together is, you know, for kids is bizarre. Uh, what's the right saying? Well, the rights generally argue that it's not the school's place to teach such things, especially without telling parents first. And so why does it matter? It matters, you know, Trey, because... Um, you know, we're in an era here of uh, left-leaning bias in ma- major institutions, and it's sort of yielded way yeah. to full-blown radical left activism. And so parents need to be made aware and be constantly informed as to what their kids are getting at these schools and what people are trying to push as the norm. Uh, and so we can't have our heads in the sand on that. Um, and like I always, I, like I like to refer to from, from the Bible, we've got to be like the sons of Issachar who are not you don't learn a lot about them, but in, in the Old Testament there, but you do learn that they were people who understood the times in which we live, and so uh, an important thing for us to do as Christians today when it comes to these disturbing topics. 
Yeah, and I always see people, particularly, you know, a lot of times people who are either just kind of try to be apolitical or who are left leaning, who will kind of roll their eyes when they see stories like this, saying, "Oh, you just uh, you've picked one story out of a million. Right? Uh, this stuff isn't happening everywhere. Like you're, you know, you're just taking an exception and making an example of it." Uh, but the sad thing is, is I mean, you and I are in this, you know, every day, and a lot of other people are, are paying a lot of attention to it. The people who are looking at this constantly can see that it's not just the you know an exceptional uh, every once in a while story uh, these are just cropping up more and more and more and they are, are coming to be representative of uh, public school systems particularly when uh, you know the left kind of takes a hold of these school boards and they're able to put this stuff in so my question with Fonty is just you know, she first faced some some national backlash in May. Uh, and it took all the way to June, I mean, to July for her to resign her position. I just wonder how much longer, even before May, uh, was she teaching this kind of stuff? And it took until uh, July to get her to to leave the school. Yeah. I just wonder how long has she been doing this kind of stuff? Because it's it's not just that I disagree with it or that a lot of Christians or conservatives might disagree with it. It's that it's just completely inappropriate uh, for you know a, a, an adult who's in a place of authority to be talking to six year old kids about sexually intimate subjects. Yeah. Like it is just there. There's no way I don't think that you can make an argument to justify that as uh, as acceptable uh, because you know at six years old kids don't even understand have any sort of grasp no. of what you're talking about and they shouldn't. Well, and and the really other disturbing part of this is that they feel that it's a educator from a government school's job to jump in and teach yes. that, especially at such a young age. Um, the fact yeah. that they feel that that is necessary and um, their duty, that it's the state's duty to go ahead and teach that to uh, kids when really it's obviously the parent's job and it should be up to the parent's sole discretion about when they teach their kids things like that. Um, so that is the larger disturbing part is that uh, and why I mentioned the activism, um, because it really does feel like they have this duty that they, they think it's their job to raise these kids, when in reality, uh, the, the public schools is not there to raise children. It's there to teach them the basics of education that they need to, to be competitive in the world. And the rest of the stuff is, should be left for the parents. Yeah, I think the unfortunate reality is that kids, whether whether it's instances like this, which are, are just completely wrong, or if it's just through their friends and talking, kids are going to be exposed to mm -hmm. some level of this kind of stuff. Uh, so I think, you know, the way I was raised is my parents just had kind of an open door policy. If you've got a question about something or you want to talk about something, feel comfortable to come ask us. And I think as Christians, that needs to be the the tact that we take, because I think that's the one of the best ways to respond to this kind of stuff is just make it a safe place for your kids to come and ask you questions about sexuality, about, you know, what does scripture say about this? How should I understand this? Or, you know, even if your kids don't ask from a biblical perspective, be ready to give them a, an answer based on scriptural mm -hmm. principles. Uh, and just, you know, be comfortable to have those conversations with your kids because they're going to be thinking about it or they're going to be presented with it in one way or another. Uh, so as Christians, I think the best thing we can do is just to equip, uh, to, as parents, to be equipped to to answer those those things for our kids so that they don't go searching for them somewhere else. All right. So, all right, story number four. So, 
A judge in Texas has ordered a Muslim woman seeking a divorce from her husband to appear in a tribunal governed by Sharia law. I have to say, Dan, that this story is just... I don't fully understand and grasp how all of this came to be, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, let me get into some yeah. of the details. So, it feels like it should uh, be a Colin Babylon Bee. It feels like it should be a Babylon Bee headline or something like that. <laughs> right, like this just, it doesn't seem like a real story, but uh, I know I, I digress. So Collin County District Judge Andrea Thompson, uh, she ruled in March that Miriam Ayed must forego the justice system's legal paths for divorce and instead submit to mediation under a fiqh panel governed by a Muslim group based in Saudi Arabia. That's according to the Washington, Washington Examiner. Uh, so the judge based her decision on the fact that Ayed signed a prenuptial agreement with her husband, Ayed Hashim Latif, as stating she would permit her marriage if necessary to be arbitrated by Sharia. Ayed's legal complaint argues that the Islamic Tribunal violates her rights as defined by the U.S. Constitution as well as the Texas State Constitution, pointing out that a woman's testimony is worth only half that of a man's under Sharia law. The application of Islamic law means that the weight and credibility of the evidence provided by the wife will be half of that of any male who testifies or provides evidence, including the husband, the court document states. Thus, the wife will neither be meaningfully heard nor afforded a meaningful opportunity to present evidence material to the controversy referring, of course, to the divorce. So despite Ayad's concerns, Thompson, the judge, said that the agreement was legally binding and she has to go to a tribunal. So obviously this is not, you know, a left or right story. Certainly there are some angles there, but it's more, it matters to believers and should matter to all Americans because this is just, you know, seems like it's an affront to what should be her constitutionally protected yeah. rights, Dan. You know, so a, a, a ruling last month actually ended up reaffirming Thompson's March decision. Uh, so now Ayed's attorney is taking the issue to Texas Appeals Court, uh, arguing the terms of the prenuptial agreement are unconscionable uh, and claiming Ayed was coerced into signing it, the prenuptial agreement, without fully understanding what she was signing her name to. Uh, so I think the takeaway here as believers, Dan, is just to be prayerful for Ayad, be you know, be prayerful for the court system, the legal system. I'm not uh, a legal scholar, obviously, so I don't understand the ins and outs of the law here. But from the outside, it seems to me like the judge, you know, essentially said, yeah, I know this is a cult and they're doing wrong and illegal things, but I have to uphold their First Amendment right, right to abuse you. <laughs> I mean, that's just that's that's what it sounds like on paper. Uh, right. Certainly, there's some complexities there that we don't understand. But, you know, as believers, like I said, I think our responsibility here is to to be prayerful for a just outcome for, for this woman and, and for, for the legal system. Yeah. I mean, to fall back on the prenup, it's like, well, at what point is a prenup, you know, when are you able to just say, well, wait a minute, you know, because if I, well, I have a prenup that says I can chop off your head if uh, you try to leave me. Well, the judge can't yeah. then go, well, but it says it right there in the prenup. You can go ahead and chop off your head. So got to do it. It's in the prenup. You know, uh, you know, so that yeah. at some point you, you should be able to draw the lines on some things that are that are written in a prenup. Just because you have a contract doesn't mean you have to uphold it, especially if it's signed under duress and it has something uh, as absurd as what is in this one. It just seems like. I, I don't know. It seems to me like the, the Constitution, the you know, the national Constitution and then the Texas state Constitution. 
I would assume that they usurp whatever is written in a, a prenuptial yeah. agreement. Like they are just, they're supreme over something that was in a prenuptial agreement uh, signed between a husband and a wife, particularly one that says that a woman's opinion, her testimony is only worth half of a man's because she might not be able to remember the details. Like that, that to me is just like, oh, well, they're slam dunk. That violates the constitution, uh, <laughs> constitutional rights there of this, of this wife. But uh, we, you know, we'll keep an eye on this story and keep reporting on it at Faithwire and at CBN. But it's just, it's a head scratcher to me because I don't, I don't understand how, how we're to this point, particularly in Texas, like you said at the top yeah. of the podcast. Yes, indeed. So um, once again, Trey, we have I think failed to deliver on an uplifting end story. But I will say, I'll throw in this here as we got the ending music rolling in. Uh, we close out the week. The Phoenix Suns and Monty Williams, the Christian coach who we talked about earlier, uh, they're up 2-0 in the series, halfway home to a title. So there's right. something positive you can be there looking for. So, all right. God bless you all. Have a great weekend. We shall see you back here on Monday with more news from a Christian perspective. God bless. Don't forget to subscribe. Leave a rating on iTunes. <laughs>